In this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast, I'm excited to welcome on Dr. Mike Lair, an associate professor at uh, Messiah University's Doctor of Physical Therapy program, to discuss his personal journey, the PNF chop and lift technique, and ankle dorsiflexion. This is our first episode of 2022. We are kicking off season three of the podcast. If you asked me when I first started the podcast, if we were going to hit over 135 episodes and have the guests that we had on and the success that we've experienced, I would have just kind of laughed at you. It's amazing how far we've come. And I credit a lot of that personal success I've had to perseverance. And speaking of perseverance, Dr. Lair really knows what it means to persevere through difficult times, as he's going to share in his personal journey. We're specifically diving into two different numbers, 37 and 1. Keep those in the back of your mind as you listen and really dive into the meaning behind those two numbers as it relates to Dr. Lair's personal story. His story of perseverance is something that I wanted to share to start off the year 2022. The world has been in a very crazy place for the past 22, 23-ish months between COVID, the pandemic, politics, all these crazy things. And we have all persevered through those situations and the circumstances in one way or the other. We face challenging times and trying times, and we have continued to push forward. A new year is here, and every new year, brings new opportunity. What will this year bring for you? Will you seize the opportunity or will you simply let it pass? Will you grab the bull by the horns or will you let the bull hit you? I hope that you choose to hit the wall harder than it hits you this year. And I hope that Dr. Lair's story of passion and perseverance and going after what you want helps to inspire and motivate you for the rest of this year. Enjoy the show. Dr. Lair, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. All right. Thank you. You've had quite the journey. We were just talking about it from your undergraduate degree in, uh, what was it, fraternity studies at Lock Haven to applying to 37 physical therapy schools and being accepted by one. So kind of a, what we'd call rough start into literally being one of the most accomplished physical therapists in the whole state of Pennsylvania, doing clinical experiences with the likes of Gray Cook and Kyle Kessel, being mentored by uh, Phil Plisky. You've really had an impressive journey, to say it lightly. So can you kind of walk us through step-by-step how you went from Lock Haven to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I would say for and from my my first steps in the journey started with Lock Haven University, and there I actually um, had the my first experience with a mentor, which is uh, nationally renowned Lori Mitchner. She was a PTATC, um, and actually just going through her class, it was an uh, introduction to PT skills and evaluation. In addition, then I spent the first year in their um, AT program, and at that point, so at that point, the the AT program was. Uh, two are uh, basically four total years for your bachelor's in AT and then two pre-AT and then you were applied to the program. So that was my first sports medicine experience uh, at Lock Haven and really it entailed, entailed a, a lot of, I just appreciate a lot of work um, that went into just the preparation in terms of, fill, you know, going from things to filling water bottles, just to observing some uh, examination treatment techniques in the training room. So I was logging a lot of hours um, 
there as well. Now, I, I will say that based on that, um, based on that experience, I certainly appreciate just how much time and effort needed to be put into that uh, venue. And then I actually got involved for, you know, in a, uh, some fraternity life at that point <laughs> and, uh, definitely had some, uh, fun, met some great uh, people. I said, I would say, uh, I didn't necessarily go into it for the, uh, basically community service, but that was something that uh, has come up before. So uh, and in that regards, and I also realized just committing to uh, to my studies as well, uh, I realized, boy, I just couldn't do it all. So that's when I shifted gears and went straight pre-PT. Um, and and I and I basically didn't go the route and didn't continue on the pathway to for AT. So I continued it with a health science degree. So there to it took me five years for a health science degree. And yes, I, as you pointed out, I would say probably two years. I basically uh, enjoyed uh, for fraternity life. Uh, so any, and I would recommend if you can have two senior years in college in this day and age, that's, uh, that would be recommended as well. <laughs> but to that end, it did lead, uh, lend itself to a GPA that was good, but not great. So basically looking at, uh, you know, some of the, some of the work, uh, by Collins, you know, and it's, you know, at that point, the, com uh, competitiveness to PT school, um, the average GPA was a three, eight, three, nine. It was, uh, and the, for PT school, graduate school, the average GPA for med school at that point, what I looked it up and it was a 3.4. So, uh, I, so at that point, and you know, going in with you know, not everything's defined by a GPA, but at that point, it was definitely something that um, was a uh, contributing factor, I would say, for that. And my GPA was a three four, so with some science GPA um, getting up at three six. Uh, that said, uh, I applied to numerous PT schools over the course of a year and a half after graduation after. Uh, earning my bachelor's in health science, I applied to PT school. So that was my actual uh, full-time job, uh, just applying to PT schools. And my part-time uh, part job, which, well, it seemed full, it was full-time, but it seemed more part-time based on the priorities of just getting into PT school was uh, really as a PT aide in tech. So um, there I was, uh, basically a year, if, uh, you know, five years removed at about 24 years old. And I was... <laughs> fortunate to uh, basically live with my parents for one year working as a tech making $7 and 50 cents an hour. Um, I enjoyed uh, uh, hanging out with my high school friends, certainly at that point, um, and had some fun there as well. Um, but then I realized that something had to move and some, you know, I had to pivot and really, you know, start working towards uh, my dream at that point, I can tell you throughout that journey, um, I knew junior year in high school that I wanted to be a PT that came from an injury back in high school. Mm -hmm. um, I just, I fell in love with it back then. I appreciated how they worked with me to get me back on, back on track with the sport. And throughout that long up, up and down journey, I never lost sight of the ultimate goal. So that kept me into it. So basically, you know, through, throughout that summer and that year, basically, and follow-up year, my days consisted of being an aide for, you know, being immersed in the uh, workplace experience in an outpatient clinic, the experiences with aquatic therapy, being able to observe a uh, number of different pathologies and rehab programs in Pottsville, PA, 
in an outpatient facility. And then at night, um, if I didn't have a softball game, you know, then at that point <laughs> then I went into and really just started applying to PT school. So at that point, it wasn't even a mass application process. It was a paper, uh, paper, um, <laughs> basically file application where you would pr be printing your name and writing your, uh, and then you write the check and there, the, the application fees can be anywhere from 35 to $50. So pretty much uh, for, you know, for every um, day that I worked the net take home, I was uh, applying to one PT school. So at the end of the day, I would say, uh, you know, I think my career could be pretty much, uh, you know, summed up in a, in a couple and simplified in a couple uh, numbers and, and the 37 um, that just shows one thing and one thing only just perseverance mm -hmm. um, at that point turning failure into success um, and then at that point I would say that one is a key uh, number as well and that's the one PT school that allowed to give me a chance so that was University of Sciences in Philadelphia where I was accepted in 1996 so I was accepted in a five-year master's program, three more years to complete it. Um, and then at that point, uh, at the end, then it was, um, you know, graduation with honors. And I, I think it's magna cum laude, uh, honors there in 1999, which started, um, which started my career and which led to the first, uh, my, uh, my outpatient experience, first job. And I've got to appreciate Bonnie Ghetto, physical therapy in Lusby, Maryland. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful uh, area just located right by the Chesapeake Bay um, in, in Lusby, Maryland. And I lived in Annapolis, uh, Maryland for two years and Prince Frederick for two years. So a beautiful area down there. And that's when I uh, really got into, I was fortunate enough to get a um, job in outpatient PT. I can tell you in 1999, when you look at the PT market, if you look back, um, there are some insurance issues that hit. And I had one of my professors, which I greatly respected, uh, his opinion suggests that I actually become a pharmaceutical rep. Mm. So um, so there, you know, so that, that was interesting as well. So that was a that was a little tough considering it was a couple months before graduation. However, he was reading the climate, and there we with the with the balanced budget act that, that just hit. PT, um, when I was applying to PT schools, PTs were getting sign-on bonuses. And when I was out, um, most of my class, they, we were having some difficulty finding jobs. So, um, but I was very fortunate to find the job in the setting that I want and uh, that I wanted. And then at that point in that setting, uh, I can tell you, I really immersed myself just in uh, outpatient care. I was addicted to continued education. I was, uh, I was basically committed to uh, learning as much as I can, as fast as I, I could at that point. Certainly, I didn't have Madison, my daughter, at that point. I was uh, engaged at the time. So uh, there I you know, had my priorities in check. Um, and uh, with the continued education experiences, probably um, just within that first year, two courses that really stood out was, well, certainly the... Um, I, I took the course from uh, from Greg, Greg Cook and Mike Voigt, um, just based on their recommendation. And as he said, in my last clinical in PT school, I was fortunate enough to be with Kyle Kiesel, um, Lee Burton and Greg Cook as well. So, um, so I spent eight weeks of really being very confused, 
um, but learning in each week uh, at that point, and they took me under their wing. And I wanted to continue that, um, you know, that knowledge journey with, in terms of with a movement-centered approach. And I really was fortunate to be at ground zero of functional movement systems, uh, just from a student standpoint, and just to see what, what they have done just over the last two decades of how they um, have, have really created a model that uh, PTs can sink their teeth into in terms of really a, applying a movement-centered approach. Um, in addition, then I, I, I had an expert, you know, I really looked into courses for manual therapy. So there I, I was fortunate enough in DC back in 2000 to go to a course with Brian Mulligan. So I was in a room with 200 people and uh, he would just ask people out of the stands to come up and, you know, basically demonstrate what they can't, uh, can't do in terms of movement. And then he would look to mobilize them and go through a quick screening of course um, prior to and then he would go through the technique right in front of people so that really uh, set the stage i thought that was very powerful because uh he had um he can he, he could show the confidence he had in his skills and his theory and his technique and he showed it uh in front of 200 people and actually getting his hands um just to, you know, performing some of the mobilizations on uh, on me for that during lab period was extremely valuable. So really taking those two and sort of synergizing those two uh, into uh, in, in updating my clinical toolbox and applying that in addition to um, the the therapists that I work with. So the therapists that I work with um, actually at the clinic they didn't do a lot of exercise. Um, people came in. They sort of, uh, the patient walked in the, the room and then walked out about 30 minutes, 45 minutes later. And I was uh, hope, I was thankful that I was actually very curious uh, to find out what was going on, you know, with some of these patients. And because we had an integrated sort of team or collaborative team approach, I was able to, you know, start, you know, start that dialogue. And they were doing a lot of soft tissue work, strain counter strain, trigger point release, myofascial release. So certainly that was another skill set that just I was able to get from some of my colleagues um, at that point to add to some of the mobilizations and then to then further expand on the movement centered uh, centered approach with that. Um, I was down at Coteau uh, Physical Therapy, started up another uh, another clinic uh, at that point from the ground up. So I had that experience, was promoted to clinic director, then regional uh, director over three clinics at that point. And so I'd, I then I, I would say definitely one or two years, I was thrown in as some administrative uh, roles and I was uh, able to learn that part of the, uh, from a part of PT practice from business standpoint. And then I had the opportunity to move back home. So I, I originally grew up in Schuylkill County in the Skook, uh, you know, at that point. And uh, I was able to get back home. This is where my family's from. This is where my uh, wife's family's from. So we were able to move back here. And that's when we settled in, in central PA area. And I was able to get a, get a job, uh, job back home. So, um, so we moved back home to Pennsylvania. And then lo and behold, probably a couple of years later, Madison Lair comes, uh, comes on. And uh, it, it basically there, I, and the, the job that I had when Madison was uh, born was literally, uh, was clinic director for physiotherapy associates. So they were, they were a bigger chain um, 
back then. And that was uh, 2000, uh, 2004, I believe. So 2004. And then at that point, um, at, I was clinic director there and I uh, basically stayed there, walked into a clinic literally that has, was uh, had a poor performance from a financial standpoint for years and a lot of turnover in clinic directors. Um, certainly Harrisburg market was a competitive market back then. It's just as competitive now um, at that point. Um, so that there I was able to use some of my skills in terms of my, uh, my marketing um, and also so just what I've learned over my career and the different business models to help um, sort of propel and, and jumpstart that clinical situation as well. So there we had zero patients, but we had a, you know, the clinic was in place, the space was in place. We didn't have to sign any uh, leases or renegotiate. Um, and from there, at that point, we were able to uh, get a net profit of uh, 25%, which put us in the, um, the top 10% within that, um, within the company. And we were invited to Florida uh, our team was invited to Florida to celebrate that achievement. So um, it was nice to see that success. I can tell you though, that, that was, those were long hours, long weeks. And um, I'm glad I could do it back then at that point. I uh, wouldn't necessarily wanna go back there, but you only have probably one or two clinic startups in your lifetime and career uh, at that point. So I took, um, I did them. And uh, then at that point in 2007, then I started doing adjunct uh, faculty work at Lebanon Valley College. And uh, then that led to visiting instructor position. Um, so with the visiting instructor position, I had a key um, decision to make um, with that offer on the table where do I leave the clinic that I helped build up with the referral sources and with staff that we actually build up um, to jump in academia. And it was a very tough decision for me, something that I contemplated a lot with and just some of the, the impact that, the ripple effect and the impact that it would have on potentially others. However, I realized I really had to center myself and focus on one key thing and that's, I love to teach. Um, that is my passion. Um, I want to, I just wanted to pay this forward in sort of, this servant leadership kind of mindset to students, to my fellow colleagues. I, and I wanted to learn also just the craft of um, teaching. You know, the, and just uh, that role just seemed to align and fit with my mindset. So in 2007, at that point, then I accepted the position. Uh, after a year, then I was, uh, um, then I reapplied and I was appointed to assistant professor. And then as uh, then that was pretty much the story over 15 years at uh, LVC and continues now at uh, Masai University for the short and sweet um, version of that. So that's quite the journey. And one thing that sticks out to me along that whole process, I know you're a big fan of Covey and the seven habits of highly effective people. I think you hit all seven at some point in there. You were proactive. <laughs> You knew from high school that you wanted to be a physical therapist. You had that end goal in mind. You uh, began with that end in mind. So there's our first two habits right there. You tend to think on a win-win uh, basis. So you mentioned that you went to different con ed courses. You were winning in the sense that you were getting so much knowledge out of those uh, experiences, knowledge that you brought into the classroom years down the line, 
and they were obviously winning because, well, they got your money. Uh, they, you also have a way to synergize information in a way that many people struggle with. You make connections and have these unique metaphors and sayings to connect what people don't know to what people do know. So whether that's your classic duct tape and WD-40 analogy or your analogy of the train on the tracks or tracks under the train, things that you said a lot that people often kind of took for granted. But really the amount of times I've thought of things myself and just thought back to those analogies and said, wow, that really, really fits. Uh, you know, you really sought to be uh, someone who understands things and then applied that to being understood by others and having a sharp impact on others. And all that while you were kind of sharpening your own saw, so to speak, through all the different con ed courses and different things you were doing. Uh, I'll, you know, I know you're a humble guy, so I'll brag for you. I think you have more letters after your name than you have in your name from uh, OCS, CSCS, Manual Therapy Fellowship. Uh, and you've worked with some of the best of the best from MLB players to professional golfers to Olympians. I mean, you, you've got the whole story here, man. It's very impressive what you've done. Well, I appreciate that, Dan. And yeah, the other number I would say is 24, 24 letters, you know, after my name. And I would say that can be broken down into just to two keywords, just lifelong learning. I'm less in, honestly, I'm less concerned about the number of letters, but for, you know, I hope, hopefully that resonates for, I do walk the walk and talk the talk. Definitely. So at that point, I do, I want to commit to lifelong learning and I wanted to expand my knowledge base and use that not expanded knowledge base to serve one of the most important person in the process. And that's the, the patient or the student at that point. Right. And that's a big piece as well, right? Tying education into your interventions with patients. So I have to ask that whole time that you were applying to 37 different PT schools to be accepted by one, what's going through your head at that point? Are you just kind of like, you know, still beaming with confident Michael Air, or are you just kind of like, wow, this really sucks? Yeah. Well, I would say a little bit in between, but humility was uh, definitely something. Um, I mean, it seemed like life was knocking me down on a daily basis. I remember one time coming home and I knew it was just a rant. I was, we were playing, and that's at that point, you're playing the mailbox game. It's not emails, you know, it's like a paper, uh, basically you get home and check the, check the mailbox as soon as you get home. And if it's a thin, and I learned quickly, if it's a thin envelope, chances are it's not good news. If it's thick, where they're looking for more information, great. Um, but I remember coming home and I'm just like, you're almost speeding home for that moment of truth to see where your life goes. And that was extremely humble, extremely frustrating. And I would say moments of excitement, yes, but a lot of moments where yes, this sucked <laughs> at that point. And am I, am I ever gonna get out of my you know, parents' house with a, a college degree kind of mindset? Absolutely. I will help my dad, um, you know, and certainly the support from my mom and dad at that point. I mean, the parents, are, it, my parents have been such an instrumental part of who I am. And I'm trying to pay that forward with my daughter, um, Madison, just by modeling. But my dad had it figured out. Um, for one, my mom, you know, over, you know, looked over the application. She was the proofreader, which was good. Um, 
she was a kid. My whole family were educators. My father was a special education teacher. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. Um, so at that point, I came from that family. My brother is a special education teacher. So, um, but I will say, my you know, my parents and my mom, my mom helped me proofread. You know, those a- a- applications before they got out. Um, they also supported me when the basically I couldn't pay the bills because I was money. The money coming in did not match the money needed to go out to pursue my dreams. Uh, so my dad did something very special. He built a uh, put up a punching bag and a weight set in the barn and an upstairs barn. And I can tell you, I spent a lot of time finding myself just in that hot upstairs barn at all hours. So you grew up on a farm then? I did not is uh, no, I'm sorry. So so basically the barn. So it's yeah, just a garage. Yeah, okay. I call it a barn because the because uh, you know my dad built it and it's almost like a you know I guess we call it garages barns up there. But yeah, my <laughs> uncle has two farms though and a lot of farmland where I grew up. So I have to ask: Is that any of the influence behind um, why you use? Uh, mostly pictures in your PowerPoints and your presentations. So I think everyone, uh, especially students, will remember that your presentations are distinct for this um, unique pictures that you put in there. So maybe like a picture of an elephant or a picture of a chicken and an egg. Um, so where'd that where'd that come from? <laughs> well, I see that resonated with you, but no, I, I you know, I, I have come to learn that. Um, you know, basically student, there's a lot of diverse learning styles out there. And certainly the, the student that I'm seeing today is different than I saw 10 years ago. It's not better or worse, it's just different. So um, so one thing that, that I think is one common thread is, I think pictures do say a lot more. They, you know, with the cliche, pictures say a thousand words, but we are visual learners. So a picture can stimulate different thoughts. And at least that could potentially open some uh, some dialogue there. And, you know, between visual learners and kinesthetic learners, I mean, if you have strategies that try or use those two things to try to get across your message or content or uh, whatever you're trying to do to get to that other other person, they can be um, they, they can be effective in a lot of ways. So when we think about movement dysfunction, I famously remember you asking me the question, have you ever seen a patient or a person who wouldn't benefit from this exercise called the chop and lift? So <laughs> where did the chop and lift come from, Dr. Lair? Where'd you get that one from? Well, I respectfully stole it from uh, <laughs> Gray <laughs> Gray and uh, Lee and Kyle. And I think they respectfully stole it from Voss and some of the original uh, or originators of PNF. So, um, so at that point, I would say, and yeah, I think that's a pretty bold statement. And sometimes I make those statements just to uh, sort of spark a little interest and uh, sort of that aha effect. But I will, I will uh, say is when you look at some of the, some of these exercises with that are based on these spiral diagonal movements. And that is the one, one, that is one key thing that I picked up from um, sort of functional movement systems from the very beginning. They, they saw the benefits of this. They, they appreciated just how um, these movements can change the neural wiring and basically the motor, pro, uh, motor learning and programming with different movements, upper quarter and lower quarter and sometimes combined. And they really focus on the patterns versus the parts. So that's something where um, 
I basically took from them and I applied it. And, you know, and over the years, I mean, I've been a PT for 22 years. There's a lot of things that I forgot. There's a lot of things that I tried, didn't work. And that's why I forgot them. PNF chop and lift. And I just did it with a student just the other day, um, just in front of the, the class. I mean, they are powerful techniques that um, when you look at it really a, a, a can encompass and address a number of different pathologies and help with movement. Right. And one of the other key areas that we think about when it comes to helping with movement an area of key pathology happens to be the ankle. Uh, ankle dorsiflexion is a commonly limited movement pattern that impacts our overall balance, our injury risk, especially with things like valgus collapse and ACL tears. I know you've done a little bit of research on ankle dorsiflexion, and uh, some people even know you as the ankle dorsiflexion guy. So what would you say the biggest role of ankle dorsiflexion is in functional movement? And what have you found from researching uh, ankle dorsiflexion over the years? Uh, yeah, and I would say absolutely. It's I would have never expected uh, when I was uh, pounding the punching bag in in the garage and barn, basically back in uh, back in the day, like '95, that I would be linking my scholarship agenda to one particular joint. But uh, but at that point, I can tell you just from playing uh, basketball, and um, you know, and my brother was a basketball player too, and had some rough games, uh, barnyard basketball out there, and we had a lot of ankle sprains. So uh, there's like, we looked at it like football and basketball combined to a degree. Um, but from, from that standpoint with dorsiflexion, uh, I kept hearing just from uh, my mentors and really they were the game changers. I, 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 they kept go, like a lot of their evaluations included in some way, shape or form closed chain dorsiflexion, more of that functional movement. And then, then they started modifying the ankle um, in a different, the position of the ankle with different ways to then look at how that could impact movement patterns. So that has always intrigued me. And then I kept with it, uh, was very confused in the beginning, and then so started seeing some clarity with each patient um, experience, success and failure at, you know, at that point. And that led to when looking at, um, door, you know, looking at dorsiflexion, uh, according with some of the research that we have done, we have looked at uh, correlations and association studies first. So in, in that regards, we saw a positive, uh, positive and moderate strength cor or uh, strength correlation between dorsiflexion and the squat. Okay. So basically the squat as defined in the FMS standards, if you, if you had a one, um, one basically if you had a one on the squat. So, so there it, that showed where you, the, if you were had a dorsiflexion restriction and that was closed chain restriction, you were more likely to see uh, a negative impact on the squat at, and it correlated with that FMS squat um, criteria for one. And the other thing is what we didn't find is we did not find a strong correlation uh, or any, a I should say a statistically significant correlation with the FMS lunge. However, when you look at the FMS lunge and the criteria, it's definitely more an upright, um, upright spinal posture that at that point, when you, when you look at that, um, you, you can, it, 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 you can make sense where it probably isn't 
um, doesn't correlate as well with the closed chain uh, dorsiflexion. So, and so those are the two key movement patterns. And the other key outcome measure and movement uh, pattern that I really have spent a lot of time with, and, and that's thanks to uh, Dr. Phil Plisky, is just his work on the uh, white balance test. So the mm -hmm. white balance test, upper quarter, lower quarter, I was able to um, help help those guys out in 2012 with the with some M MLB uh, screenings as well. So really what I, I just like that is sort of like that functional goniometer kind of thing. You can objectify their balance. It's certainly a quantitative test. Um, you don't necessarily um, look at their qualitative and it, you know, qualitative movements during that. However, what I did find during the, um, during the, the past two experimental studies at, and trials that the, there is a positive correlation <clears throat> with between closed chain dorsiflexion and the, and composite scores and the three different excursions. Um, previous research, not necessarily the, the research that we have published um, or the research that I'm you know going to disseminate in my dissertation with my dissertation info, is that the anterior reach seemed to really glean from the, the from the literature. Mm -hmm. I can tell you from my uh, research, certainly the posterior uh, medial direction, uh, I'm sorry, posterior lateral direction had a stronger uh, correlation uh, than anterior. Okay. But, uh, but again, composite scores there, you saw all those come together in a positive uh, uniform uh, correlation relationship. Um, so it, that, so we do know that there's a correlation where closed chain doors flexion impacts and, and can correlate with fundamental movement patterns as far as squat and single leg uh, squatting kind of movements, especially with the three excursions. So that's quantifiable. We, we've seen that. We see that consistently. The other thing that we look at in closed chain dorsiflexion is basically it's an intrinsic modifiable risk factor. <clears throat> so within, with being an intrinsic modifiable risk factor, now we get to appreciate, well, we can change this. So we can change this based on if a person, if an athlete comes in repeated ankle sprains at that point, and we're say that person's ready to return to sport, and he has 32 degrees of closed chain dorsiflexion on the involved, and 39 on the uninvolved, well, there we're basically leaving things on the table, and basically we're we're looking at releasing that person to the trainer, back to the doctor, um, saying they're ready to return to sport when really they're at increased risk. Um, for further injury. So, so with that said, it, then the next question is, so what do we do about it? So um, that leads in some of the research that we, we talked about where what manual technique is most effective at improving dorsiflexion. And we found some interesting results as, and, and we, we really got these results. Um, we've seen these results in two separate studies. Um, the earliest study we did was compare um, closed chain dorsiflexion mobilization. Okay, certainly there that goes into my mulligan um, sort of bias and affinity for uh, these kind of uh, situations. But so the closed chain mulligan MWM followed, uh, and then we also looked at the instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization delivered to the gastroc and soleus um, in closed chain. And then we did a stud, and then the third group was actually where we stacked those. We did the mobilization first, then the I stim um, together, and then the fourth group was control. So we looked at those four control groups, and at that point, 
we had each one of those. And I mean, I'll, I'll throw it, throw it out to you. You have enough ex, uh, clinical experience and background now. What If you were had to, let's say you were at Hollywood Casino in Central PA, shameless plug, I have no investment in that place, but which one, uh, which one would you pick as far as in the clinic? What do you think would yield the most benefit? Between Mulligan and iSTEM. Uh, iSTEM or the combo, or, the, okay. or we did combo. Well, I'm a little bit biased because I happened to present this at Pittsburgh. Uh, thanks again to you. Uh, so <laughs> personally, I would pick the Mulligan Mobe. I would think the combo would be uh, best because, right, the more you do, the better you would expect things to be. Um, but out of bias, I would pick Mulligan. Uh, one, because I've become really good at it from learning it through you and doing it time and time again. And two, it's active. We have movement, right? Active movement is usually a good thing as opposed to passive eye stem. Right. Right. So, yeah. And you, you hit it on the head there. One, the biggest surprise for me is that the combo group did not do as well as either one of those in isolation. Um, but, at, but certainly all three did better than the control. So, um, so we, we do now see, at least from our uh, preliminary evidence that yes, you can make a difference and it's a short-term difference. We're not talking about doing that over a course of eight sessions. We did it in one session. Um, so with, in that regards, it, it, the other thing to think about, you just have to wonder if depending on the situation, is that joint ready for that um, sort of wake up call, afferent input in the neuromusculoskeletal system that uh, you, you want to do it in a way that improves movement and not elicits so, sort of that protective response. Like what is going on here? So now the body's just going to sort of shut down around it and then it's counterproductive. Um, so moving on to that, then we also looked at which manual technique. Uh, then we looked at high velocity thrust because that's the next uh, next part of the story, high velocity thrust and closed chain MWM. Um, and we, and we compare that to the control group with my dissertation study. We looked at two variables, white balance tests and, and uh, pre and post test design for closed chain dorsiflexion. And actually we saw, uh, like you just said, that the closed chain MWM, when there was a, uh, you know, when there was a restricted as defined by the 35 uh, degree mark. Um, that was first uh, demonstrated in Pope in 1998, then further emphasized in the uh, CPGs as of late. Um, the MWM had the higher statistical uh, significance in terms of degrees, I think to like 2.744 degrees, which doesn't seem like a lot in the clinic. And, uh, and certainly the clinical significance um, you know, somebody could look at, well, is that clinically significant? And there I would go back to, well, it would depend, depend on if that two degrees could potentially decrease uh, potential injury risk for that lower extremity, um, uh, you know, at that point. So, um, so at the end of the day, um, you know, with the research shows, dorsiflexion matters, and it matters in terms of improving or uh, potentially improving uh, the squat pattern, at least impacting it at that point. So you can hit two birds with one stone. There's another analogy to a degree. Um, <laughs> and then also looking at, you know, manual therapy, there is effective um, use of manual therapy skills to address this real key impairment. And I always say this, not all impairments are created equal. And, uh, 
you know, I don't see my research turning. I'm looking at improving inversion range of motion or plantar flexion range of motion um, because I think you, uh, if you really want to make a change in a person's movement, start at the osteokinematics of the tail of curl joint and the ankle complex, and then reinforce with some neuromuscular corrective exercise for functional patterns, closed chain. Right. That's huge. Is making sure that those new changes that you created passively stick in a active sense. And that's, again, why we see the mulligan mode being so effective, because it combines the passive and the active in one. I'm curious, what's your kind of theory on why the combination wasn't so effective? I have a couple thoughts of my own, but is there any key sure. finding that you took away from that? Yeah, and that was the biggest surprise uh, for me. And actually, I, I had to, you know, sort of go back and talk to some of my mentors with it. And, and, you know, some of the answers there was, it, it was just could potentially the neuromusculoskeletal system of with different individuals may not be ready for that kind of extra input mm -hmm. into that system. And then the, the default would be sort of just that protective response in a way. Right. Um, if it if it's if it's uh, too much, so there it's there you go into you know there is it's more than just a science. It is an art of PT and certainly manual therapy too. You have to really gauge how much is too much and and how little is too little. And that's that again sounds like so vague, but what I've seen just over the career when you really get competent, proficient, uh, and in these manual skills, it is somewhat addicting because you do want to help people. So you do want to you want to see that improved movement at that point. And um, so it, with that, I, I would say, I would say even though you can doesn't mean you should kind of thing. And there you go pre and post tests and really read your client. Right. And the other thing I thought about too is potentially a therapeutic window, kind of what we think about in pharmacology applying to manual therapy. You said it yourself, how much is too much? If we give too much, then maybe we start to see side effects, kind of like we would in pharmaceuticals. So I have to ask, is there any closing thoughts or closing remarks or any big takeaways you want people to learn from your own journey and experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say persistence, know your dream, at that point, persist in your dream, realize you're gonna get kicked in the teeth, you're gonna get knocked down at that point. However, with persistence and your commitment to whatever you pursue, at that point, stay the course. And with that, um, you're gonna be bigger, stronger, uh, down the road for it and realize you're not in it alone. You need to surround yourself with mentors, you need to surround yourself like students who push, uh, such as yourself. Uh, so challenge, you want to see students challenge the professors, open, you know, embrace those questions uh, at that point. And I would say to my fellow colleagues, professors, you know, we can use our students as a window to see how effective our teaching is or isn't. So let's demonstrate humility. Let's demonstrate, um, you know, just and, and model behaviors such as lifelong learning and commitment and model those behaviors so the future generation uh, such as yourself, can sort of carry that torch forward. And always remember those three favorite numbers, right? 37, 1, and 24. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is, if you add those up, it comes down to like a total of 87. So that that total career. So <laughs> if you want to subtract those. 
but <laughs> well dr Lowe, i really appreciate your time your insight and you sharing your journey with us all right excellent thank you dan appreciate you having me on all right miss you guys at lbc but happy at messiah too <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to our first episode of 2022. Season three has officially kicked off and I could not be more excited. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform if you are not already, because we have such an incredible lineup of guests for this year for you. Additionally, make sure you share this episode and our podcast as a whole with a friend that you think would benefit from the information that we share. Last, if you could leave a review on whatever platform that you listen on and check out the links that you see in our description, such as the support link or our various affiliate links, because that helps to support me and what I do in order to keep the podcast going. Thank you as always, and we'll see you next week for another exciting episode with Eric Diagati.